I'm Bub. Welcome to Bub on Purpose, the podcast. I believe that a life driven by purpose can lead to a more fulfilling life. So I ask passionate people why they do what they do. I dive deep into conversations with people of all ages who have developed their life purpose and who can inspire, offer advice, share techniques for developing purpose, and articulate their perspectives. As this podcast is in the early stages, I'm really just excited to dive in and learn myself and share that with you guys. So if you're here in this early stage, I really appreciate you for listening and I hope you take away something valuable. It's not just this generation's fault that they feel so lost and that they're all trying to find their calling but can't. You've just been given more opportunities than anyone else ever had before. You have to try to look for something deeper than the culturally constructed. There's urgency to this passion thing, so I think you're really on to something. We're talking about whether we survive on the planet or not. I would live my life as if I was going to write a book about it. What would people say about me at my funeral? You really have to have a healthy disrespect for other people's opinion. Life is not this guarantee. We're in, there's no guarantee in life. The truck runs me down right after this interview. I've fucking died doing everything I could possibly have done. The voice inside of you that's asking those questions deserves to be honored. That's your truth. That's your clarity. That's your passion. In this episode of Bub on Purpose, I speak with Josh Dean. Josh is a journalist, author, and podcast host based in Brooklyn, New York. And I just figured out that he lives about a block and a half away from me. And over the years, he's written for dozens of national magazines, including Rolling Stone, New York Magazine, and Esquire. He's a correspondent for Outside and a regular contributor to Bloomberg Businessweek, GQ, and Popular Science, among others. In this episode, he really convinces me of how important journalism is, and certainly has been following his passion for writing since the day he realized he wanted to write. Here is Josh Dean. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so I saw on your website you say that you're a magazine writer and an asker of questions. <laughs> yep. How about right now, what are you currently most passionate about? Th weird things have happened to journalism. I set out to be a magazine journalist. That's why I moved to New York and the magazine industry kind of has been falling apart over the past 10 years. But what I realized is uh, like the thing that I like about it is applicable to other mediums. Like I like meeting interesting people and telling their stories. Like, and that applies to books. And that I'm, I have a podcast coming out now. I'm like starting to explore TV a little bit. Um, I realize that like it doesn't have to be a, a print magazine story. I'm just like, it seems like a real privilege to to be able to like constantly be shifting from one world to another and just telling interesting stories that are not in one particular niche. So like I write about business and and I've done culture and celebrity and I've done travel and I've done I mean pretty much everything not politics although I have written about some political people so like it sounds really trite but I guess I'm most passionate about storytelling mm -hmm. um, and it's one of those words that gets tossed around like it's like advertising people use it and business people use it but for me it means a very specific thing it's like going and and spending time with interesting people and then like telling their stories in a way that make other people interested in their lives so um, this, I have a podcast coming out this week, which was my first time with audio. Um, and I've, I've worked a lot in magazines, obviously, and I've written two, working on my third book now. Uh, and hopefully I can keep doing it. You know, it's, it's all a matter of like pivoting. The thing that I thought I would be doing forever, which is writing magazine stories, mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily seem like a viable career if that's the only thing you're doing. Like, I'm not sure that I can make a full-time living. I have little kids. Yeah. My expenses are higher than they used to be. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it, it's still, after all these years, I still, I'm not jaded by it at all. I really love, it seems like a, a privilege to go and meet people and, and talk to them and, and tell their stories. How, how did you get into it? I was lucky enough to, like, 
you hear about you know people having an epiphany or like a moment when it becomes you get struck by lightning and you realize the thing that you're meant to do and it actually really happened to me in college hmm. um i went to this small liberal arts school in ohio called wittenberg um like 2500 students my dad had gone to one in indiana called wabash my mom went to one it was like kind of a family thing these little midwestern liberal arts schools and i I didn't know what I was going to do. My parents are professors. I, th I was like, maybe I'll be a lawyer. I, like, I knew I wasn't going to go to med school. I'm not a science person. And then we had to take a writing exam our junior year. It was just like a requirement. Every junior takes it. And I like, it went really well. Like, in fact, I got a perfect score, which only happens every few years or whatever. Mm. So people were like, have you ever thought about writing? <laughs> and, and I literally had never thought about it, even though my mom is a poet and she, my dad has written a couple history books. It never occurred to me. But like from that moment on, I was like, oh, okay. Like they kind of found me. I'm like, I'm hmm. good at writing. So I tried all the, you know, I worked for the college newspaper. I started working on the alumni magazine. And what I really quickly realized was I wanted to write longer feature type stories. I like spending more time on something than jumping from story to story. And I didn't want to do TV. I didn't want to do, I knew I wanted to work in magazines. So I moved to New York and then just did the whole struggle thing. You know, I like took a bunch of terrible jobs and lived in gross apartments and, it's like, I mean, it's like a badge of honor for New York. We all go through mm. it, right? <laughs> you live in like places that you would later in life, you're like, how did I live in that place? Like, was there really a toilet in the kitchen? <laughs> Roaches coming out of the drain? And I had terrible jobs. But it was like, I was determined to do it. So, you know, I just like worked from a, one, a slightly, a bad job to a slightly worse job to a like pretty relevant job. And then by like, finally I was broke into magazines. I worked at details which is now gone um i did some time at some teen magazines before that because i was just like i don't care i just <laughs> want to work at a magazine mm. it's sort of like a step toward not everything has to be like directly relevant to the thing that you know you want to do ultimately or at least you can see that this like it's the experience it's not necessarily no one's going to judge you by what you're doing it's like it's more important to like prove that you're trying to do the thing that you say you want to mm -hmm. do um and then i just Ended up staying in men's magazines for a while, and I've now been on my own. I've been full-time freelance journalist for, I actually don't know that I have a count anymore. What year was that? Like 15 years, I think, which is crazy to say out loud. Like, I didn't actually mean to do it even. I was working at Men's Journal, actually, and um, actually, the person who hired me at Men's Journal, Mark Bryant, we were talking about earlier off-air, off is that he was a, a great magazine editor, edited outside, and he and I started a, a sports magazine for the New York Times called Play. For a while, he edited Men's Journal and he hired me. And then Men's Journal at that time was owned by Jan Wenner, the founder of Rolling Stone, who's a very mercurial, temperamental fella who likes to fire people. So mm -hmm. I think Mark quit, but then three other editors-in-chief came in. So in five years, I had four bosses. And by the fourth one, I was just like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. It was like, I didn't get along with that guy. I didn't quit. He actually fired me. And I just thought, you know, I just, I wanted to write anyway. Why don't I give this a try? And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back and I'll be a magazine editor again. And that was 15 years ago. Hmm. So I guess it turned out all right. When you sort of had that realization, was it clear that you just wanted to write or did you have a goal that you were striving towards? I knew I wanted to write. So even when I was an editor, I was probably annoying to some of the other editors because I would like constantly be volunteering to take stories or uh, trying to put myself forward, not always successfully. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, I I went into magazines taking jobs as an editor because it seemed like, well, well, one, it was stable. You like got a salary and benefits and like health insurance is nice. But also I felt like it was a way to establish myself. I knew that if I had magazine jobs, I could probably do some writing and I would meet people. And really, in the end, that was probably the most valuable thing was that once I did, then once I went freelance, all the people that I had worked with before, like I had contacts to go out to. So I wasn't just like pitching people cold. Like I had, these were relationships that I had. So um, I had always wanted to write and I knew that I would never be, I wasn't like dying to be an editor in chief. And that's definitely a track you can go on. Um, I was like, this is a, a means to an end and, and maybe getting fired is an opportunity. I think you probably hear that a lot from people, you know, like sometimes the best thing that happens to you is getting fired. Cause I don't know. I probably would have stayed a while and not been happy. Um, I don't know how long cause Jan would have just kept switching the editor out, but it was like, 
in retrospect, one of the best things that happened to me because it was like scary for a day. And then I was mm-hmm. like, well, I, I, at that point, I didn't have kids. I was relatively young. I had I, w- I wasn't making a ton of money, but I could afford my apartment. And I was like, well, if I can just make enough money to cover my apartment, eat, go out every once in a while, I'll be fine. And here I am. Now I got kids and <laughs> still surviving. Still surviving in an industry that's falling apart. My unfortunately, well, not unfortunately. My wife is wonderful. But I married someone in the same industry as me. <laughs> so we were going through the same, like, circling the toilet together. Um, she works at People Magazine, which is actually a very successful magazine. Will probably be the last magazine standing. <laughs> but it would be great to be married to someone in an industry that's not worried about its future. Mm-hmm. Um, then again, you know, what you, you, worry, you meet people who have similar interests and, like, who you worked with. And that's what happened. And so she'll be with magazines for a while longer. People's doing very well. And I'll do magazines as long as I can, but I'm doing other things. And, and um, I feel like, yeah, there's always stories and, and the gross di- sort of tech business term is content, which to me is like such a weird word that doesn't really mean anything. But that's that's what like VC people call stories, right? Mm. There's like, there's just like, I mean, we've been telling stories for millions of years. Well, there haven't been humans for millions of years. However long there have been humans, we've been telling stories, right? It's it's just something that we do. It's like traditions that are passed down and people like to hear what other people are doing and people want to be entertained and, and sometimes to feel sad, sometimes to be moved. You know, we were talking about climate change before we started recording and I mean, you need to hear those bad stories too. And what you need is someone who can explain them go out and do the learning and then translate that into a message that like your average person can read i mean and that sounds sounds kind of insulting but when it comes to science or math or certain kinds of engineering those are not easy stories for the average person to grasp but sometimes they're really important like i mean i just want to shake people everyone in the world needs to read about climate change and learn what's happening or like and journalists are really good at that process of you know we say ask her questions I go, I wrote a story about, I am not a physicist. I actually, I didn't fail physics in college. I took it past fail and I think I barely passed. But I wrote a story about nuclear fusion once, a startup company that was trying to make nuclear fusion. And I do not understand complicated physics, but I have to go and spend a week with these guys in Vancouver and like basically ask them a million questions until I understand enough about the science to go and explain it to like my mom or like my kid. Now it's been eight or nine years since I did that story. I'm not sure I can still do it. But if you picked up the story I wrote about for popular science, I think you would understand something about nuclear nuclear fusion. Yeah, and I think that's where journalists are valuable. Um, even in politics, you know, political writing has become almost like sports writing. It's like more about the personalities and like ups and downs of what happened today. But like some of the most important stuff is what journalists who really bear down and pay attention to what's happening and then tell us what's happening. You know, like yesterday I read a story about bees. Like Trump administration stops monitoring the honeybee population. They like kill the survey. I saw that. Then the next day or the next week or whatever, the EPA reverses the ban on the pesticides that's killing the bees. And it's like, oh, why wow, bees? I'm like, well, yeah, without bees, we are not going to have food. And someone needs to write about that so that the general public understands. Yeah, and I think the danger of the journalism industry falling apart is that like we're lo- we're going to lose the people who are who might save us from ourselves not to build journalists up to be like heroes but like they're the ones who are paying attention to the things that everyone you know most people have jobs like how is your average person ever going to know about honeybees and the EPA mm-hmm. if they're not told by journalists cuz politicians sure as hell aren't going to tell them they're the ones like caving to the lobbyists and making the change in fact they don't want journalists to tell that story where do you see journalism transitioning to i mean the problem is the business model is, is has been broken i was actually talking to i write a lot for bloomberg business week um that bank robbery opiate story we were talking about earlier was for them and i'm doing another story right now and i was out with the editor last night and we were talking about this for for generations advertising supported journalism so basically subscriptions were really cheap once the internet came around, it was free to read the New York Times online because advertising, they were just like cash and checks because all the companies that wanted to market to people 
you didn't have to work hard as a salesman, but then Google and Facebook arrived and they're like, yeah, we can deliver you straight to your end consumer, right? Like, why are you spending your money with GQ or Business Week? Mm-hmm. You can, like, I'll put it right in their Facebook feed. And they just wrecked the business model. But it was a partly self-inflicted wound because the industry devalued its own product. It was so easy to make money that what they didn't do is teach people that journalism is valuable. So the Times has successfully pivoted now. Like, you have to pay for a subscription. You should have always have had to pay for a subscription. It is very expensive to produce the New York Times. Every reporter, stories take weeks and months, and every one of those reporters is making a good salary. I mean, not compared to finance or law, but like, uh, uh, you know, if you want the best reporters, you pay them very well. And when you give it away to people for free, they get conditioned that it should be free. So there's a, we basically train an entire generation of people that news is free. Because of advertisements. Yeah, advertising subsidy. And now that, that the market fell out of advertising, the industry has to be like, wait a second, you know this thing that you like that's really, you know, you're entertained, you're enlightened, you're, you're like, it's challenging politicians and holding business leaders accountable. Like that costs us a lot, of, like millions of dollars a year. And if we don't get you to pay us for it now, there may not be a New York Times. You know, Jeff Bezos swept in and saved the Washington Post, but he's not just propping it up. They put up a paywall. They've got, like, all these ancillary businesses. They're basically, like, we're in the process of retraining the public, I think, that journalism costs money. Whether that it may be too late to save magazines, but I think that newspapers are doing feature journalism and and hopefully some digital companies will figure out how to save it. And, um, you know, the thing that I do is a little bit more complicated right now because i'm not sure people there's quite been a model created for like how do we get people to pay like do you charge them for the article if it's like a ten thousand word article that's essentially like a mini book some people are trying that maybe some of these journalism companies will the times is doing very well it's worked for them i think the post is doing well but it's still i'm not like super optimistic like small town papers have gotten killed yeah. facebook destroyed small town news and actually small town news is maybe some of the most valuable stuff cuz when you go and talk to someone and i grew up in a small town in appalachia and i i have a place upstate in a small town like the, those people often don't care about national politics or but they care a lot about what's happening in their own communities and terrible shit is happening in their communities too that they need to know about the only way they're going to know about it is if a journalist tells them right like it's very easy to be corrupt and get away with bad things in small towns because you have the most money in town you're the most powerful person in town and your friends are the other most powerful people and the cops and everyone else are going to naturally defer to you because like you're the big guy in town right the only person who challenges big people really it it should be Hmm. politicians and journalists it's often just journalists I mean there are like good honest politicians still but i don't know i'm not super optimistic about Mm. politics or at least to have the balance of the two might be necessary right yeah or for sure and you know i hate to like i feel like every conversation goes to the president these days but i'm like like so much damage has been done with this whole fake news idea i hear it all the time when i go out into the world it's like you know, in some cases, it's a joke. People use it almost as a cliche that's fake news. But it's it's been so damaging to journalism. Because w- what he does is he, like, seizes on a small mistake in an otherwise really rigorous piece of journalism and, like, tries to discredit the whole thing, basically. Like, oh, the CNN lied to you. The New York Times lied to you. Like, those journalists try really hard to get things right. But you're often you're trusting somebody's word or you make a small mistake. That doesn't mean the whole thing is wrong, right? But they'll they'll use that, and what and what it's done is like tarnished the whole industry. So now people just assume journalists are dishonest because the president tells them the journalists are dishonest. Well, whereas like he spends all day watching Fox News, which is actually dishonest journalism. Like, I just started watching the loudest voice in the room that uh, Roger Ailes Showtime show. It's about the rise of Fox News, mm, and okay. it's like a cynical operation. Fox News was started by very smart people, mostly Roger Ailes, to cater to a specific demographic which is essentially like today trump voters like a part of america that felt ignored and aggrieved and that the the press was liberal which is maybe fair right the the press probably is liberal leaning though i don't think it's it's like advocacy for liberalism um but he's like hey all these people out there are looking for something and i'm gonna cynically create this thing for them for them yeah and they're putting on these blowhards on and they like flat out lie to people the new york times doesn't lie to people the washington post doesn't lie to people cnn doesn't lie to people i mean i kind of hate cnn because it's a bunch of talking heads just like talking about trump all day is when you say they're straight up lying is that just a business decision or what's the 
I think, yeah, they're saying the things that their audience wants to hear, I think. Well, and these days, I feel like they're talking to the president, basically. Like, we've never had a situation where the president just sits around and watches Fox. Well, he watches one channel because that channel makes him feel good. My gosh. <laughs> like, it, like, gives him, like, dopamine release, I think. Because I think, you know, this is, like, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, I'm not an evolutionary psychologist. But, I, you know, being told that you're wrong or that you're bad or that you're... The regular media is constantly telling Trump he's doing something wrong because often he is, or he's just so unlikable and like he's getting criticized a lot. That feels bad. Like, yeah, when I write a story and someone tells me it's bad, I don't like the way that that feels. I want people to read my stories and be like, Man, that was great, I loved it. That feels really good. The only place Trump gets that is Fox News. So, I think the whole operation is now catered to almost like making the president feel good because the rest of the world makes him feel bad. Right? That's, that's his therapist, it I, sounds like. I think it is. Like, Sean Hannity is his therapist. <laughs> it's very depressing, actually. Jumping a little bit more towards your perspective on what you do, but how do you find articles? What draw, now that you're a freelance? Journalist, how do you find articles? I wish there was a simple... Or, sorry, find stories. Right. I mean, I wish there was a simple answer to that because it would make my life a lot easier. In some some ways, they find me. Like, I end up meeting people in random situations. I mean, a couple examples. I mean, so a magazine like Business Week, I have a very good relationship with right now. Because they actually have money and are doing ambitious stories. So in some cases, they assign me stuff. Or they'll give me a subject, like with the, this bank robbery story. So I did a story about a guy who was an engineer at Boeing who got hooked on opiates back in the early 2000s because he hurt his back um, and eventually got addicted, which is like a very common American story now. But this was back before we knew the danger of opiates. It spirals into a heroin addiction went on a bank robbery spree, ultimately got caught, obviously lost his job, still in prison. That came about because they they were going to do an issue um, about heists, and, and they said, do you have any heist stories? And I set out to do, what what's like a successful bank robbery? Like, I want to do a story about not a guy who pulled off one big bank robbery. I want to find a guy who's just really good at bank robbery, like, and try and dig into the art of it. Like, what does it mean to be good at bank robbery? And so I found this guy who robbed 30 banks in a year, 30 banks in 54 weeks, I think. So one in every two weeks, but more than one every two weeks. I was like, wow, that's impressive. He only got like $77,000. So I'm like, whoa, that is a tremendous I, amount of risk to take for a very small income. <laughs> I mean, you know, a good middle class income, but still, you're assuming a lot of risk. You could get shot. I, I was reading the article and I saw it was like, what, like 2000 bucks per yep. robbery. And I was like, yes, that's enough money to live but it's not, to put your life on the line is yeah right knowing that every time you could go to jail and yeah. ruin everything else yeah <laughs> well i mean he was a, he was a drug addict yeah, so yeah. he was only looking to support his drug habit but but anyways what happened with that one is i found a successful robber the money just i was like wow that is just i would expect a guy who robbed 30 banks to make like three million dollars so i just reached out to him he's in jail still in, in wisconsin in washington we started talking and it took a real twist because it turned out like he, he told me his story of like i didn't want to be a bank robber i was like i was literally an engineer at boeing um i was like whoa this is this is way deeper and and it became much more of a human story of like a, a guy's life falling apart that also included the machinations of how you rob banks very successfully. So that was a case where I went off in search of something and ended up in a different place. Um, but then sometimes it's just like ran, random encounters of like, uh, I just heard about, for instance, I did a story earlier this year about um, this hearing aid company in Minnesota. And I was like, God, that's boring. But there's a scandal that happened, like the, there was like like an attempted palace coup where part of the management tried to overthrow this like eccentric owner who like founded the world's biggest hearing aid company. Um, so I went up there and I was going to write about the scandal, but in the process of like recovering from the scandal, they ended up like hiring this guy from Intel who turned hearing aids into like a, essentially a smart device. So mm. like they can do all kinds of things like fall detection and you can stream audio from your phone and they take all these body metrics like heart rate and so it was like a, a wearable thing i'd never even considered so it was like kind of about bouncing back from a scandal but it was also about innovation in a very unusual place and, and the story ended up getting played up as like 
I think it was like the, you know, the future of wearables because the ear turns out to be a place where like you can get all the vital signs and also equilibrium. So for older people who wear them, who fall a lot, falling is one of the leading causes of death for old people. It like it, it knows immediately when you're falling and then Whoa. you can't get up. If in like 30 seconds you don't get up, it then can like have your phone Jeez. call 911 and say like, yeah, this person's in trouble. So it literally, like literally life changing. And again, it was just a random situation. And then other times I'll go set out for a specific thing or I'll just see something in the news and think that's interesting. So it sort of seems like there are flags that you're paying attention to and you're like, oh, that seems interesting and start diving into it. Yeah. And, so, and sometimes it's as simple as I just like read, you know, I read the New York Times every day. I read the Washington Post a lot. I'm like a pretty active Twitter lurker and in my case, it's I, I like follow. I mean, it's gotten kind of toxic now. I feel like it's way more people fighting and being terrible. But it's my news filter, so I follow people from worlds that I'm interested in. And I've had multiple stories come about that way, where someone who's like a real expert in some niche, like, puts out a story or mentions something. I'll be like, oh, that's interesting, and I'll look into it. I never would have heard about that if I wasn't following that person. Um, so just, for me, Twitter is a bit of a news filter although I think becoming less effective. Uh, so, I mean, that's a long way of saying there's no normal way. Um, and then my last book was about the CIA, um, about this gigantic covert operation to steal a submarine from the Russians that involved this really elaborate cover story. I like to say it was like James Cameron's Argo. It's like an underwater bait and switch. And during It was the, with Howard Hughes. Yeah, they used what Howard Hughes as a cover story. So basically... Soviets lost a sub with nuclear missiles on it. The U.S. found it. Um, it. I won't get into the particular. It's a very complicated story, but basically we located it after they lost it, sitting at the bottom of the ocean. They don't know that we know where it is. Um, so there's two parts. They're like, well, as an engineering problem, could we get the submarine? And it that, that is a gigantic engineering problem, like on the level of the, the moon landing, if not wow. maybe more complicated it turns out they did figure out a way. You know, this was during the Cold War when almost no cost was too much. Like we would basically do anything for an advantage over the Soviets. So they figure out we can get it, but that wasn't that was just part of the problem because it was going to require this massive ship recovery system that was going to look very conspicuous. So you have to basically convince the world that that ship is doing something else. Otherwise, the Russians are like, "Why did you? What's that ship doing out in the middle of the Pacific around where we lost the submarine? That seems weird." Like. Well, we need a cover story for it. We have to tell the world something. So they told the world that Howard Hughes was mining the bottom of the ocean and that this was a mining ship. And then went, <sighs> ma mounted a massive disinformation campaign, <sighs> hired scientists to go out to conferences, built legitimate mining equipment that was plausible. <laughs> like the UN, like debates broke out at the UN about the rights of the seafloor. It was incredibly effective lie that, per that worked for six years to cover this operation. <laughs> And unfortunately, it only kind of worked because the, the thing, when they were picking the submarine up, the submarine actually broke in half. So the part that they wanted, they didn't get. Oh, my gosh. But it's an amazing story. It's, a, it's an engineering triumph. Because it was a CIA covert project, it's become kind of well-known legend. And I guess since my book came out, it's better known now. But it's still such a crazy feat of engineering that it would be like everybody would know about if it hadn't been a secret project. And then there's that like lie part of it. The Howard Hughes part is like, this is what the CIA is very good at. They've literally convinced the entire world that the, this eccentric billionaire was mining the ocean and that was all a lie. Wow. And so people listening know it's called take the taking of K-129? Yep. Uh, so the taking of K-129. So K-129 was the name of the submarine. Um, I forget what the subhead is. It's how it's. I've got it. How the CIA used Howard Hughes to steal a Russian sub in the most daring covert operation in history. Well, that's more words than I thought. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that came out uh, September of two years ago. I'm trying to help some guys get it made. It would make a great movie. That's that's. I have no pull in that world. The people just like they buy your rights and they try and make movies. It's a it's a hard. It's a very. I mean, we don't know how much it costs the CIA. Estimates are like. It had to have been in the billions. Hmm. Um, that money is like unaccountable black budget stuff. And the CIA has talked about some of it, but not all of it. I mean, I know they're okay with my book because I actually went to Langley and gave a, a talk at CIA headquarters in October. How was how that set up? 
or through their history staff. So okay. the book came out. Um, they didn't support it, but I knew they were fine with it because you know I just heard things. Yeah, uh, and I, I had like a cordial relationship with them. I went to I went to Langley three or four times to try and get documents out of them. They didn't actually give me much, but they were never like, "Go away, we don't like what you're doing." This is so old now. Like, yeah. no, no, I'm not putting anyone at risk by writing this book. And they then the history staff just reached out and said, "Hey, would you like to come?" We think like younger people at CIA kind of know about this, but they don't know much about it. We think it would be, you know, morale can be low around here because everyone bashes us. Can you come and like tell a story of this? Like, I don't know if it's fair to call it a triumph because it didn't entirely succeed, but on some levels it was a great triumph. And But again, to go back to your original question, where stories come from. So act, this is interesting because, so I go to Langley and give this talk in October. I'm talking to the history staff the main historian for the CIA and I, we go to lunch and we start talking about this other guy. So there's a couple chapters in my book about the group that put this operation together had previously done some aerospace projects for the CIA. So they designed the U-2 high altitude spy plane and then the SR-71 Blackbird, which is still the fastest plane in history. Unbelievably advanced technology in the 1950s. The thing went Mach 3 plus and flew at 80,000 feet. I mean, just like, like a spaceship, essentially, built in secret by the CIA. And one guy, the same aerospace designer, Kelly Johnson, designed both of those planes. And he had this thing called the Lockheed Skunk Works out in L.A., which was a secret airplane design shop. So the historian and I start talking about this. And I can't remember whether he said it first or I said it first. He was One of us was like, God, there hasn't really been a great Kelly Johnson book, has there been? Like, <laughs> I was like, you know what? No, there hasn't. There, there have been some, but not a great one. Not a, not one deserving of, of who he was. I mean, the Smithsonian, I think, ranked him the number one aerospace designer of the 20th century. But again, similar to my book, he's not as well known as he should be because most of what he did was secret. So on the train ride home from Washington, I sent an email to my agent. And I was like, what do you think of this? It's like, I, it was like staring at me. I should have thought of this. It's like basically right in front of my face. And he's like, I think that's a pretty good idea. You should write a proposal. And like by the next week I'd sold it. So that book just fell in, literally fell in my lap. You know, like I didn't go there thinking that I was going to come up with a book idea. I left there with a book idea. Um, so part of it, I think is like being a journalist is just like having your eyes open all the time and listening to people and like, just I often have like a lot of things in the back of my head like you know I don't know you and I in conversation you might mention something that's interesting and I'll, I won't note it but I'll think about it and then later I might go read about it and like you you follow these you fall into a rabbit hole next mm -hmm. thing you know there's something great down there not always I waste a lot of time too I mean I've got I've started on millions of stories yeah. that don't pan out so it's like yeah having your eyes and ears open and and I think for me because I don't specialize there's two schools of thought, I think, about being a journalist. One is that you hyper-specialize. You become a climate change writer or a politics writer or a sports writer or maybe even like a hockey writer. Or you're like a more of an omnivorous person who doesn't specialize in anything and is able to write about anything. That's always what I wanted to do. I think it's sometimes hard harder to make a living because people don't necessarily think of you that when they're like, Hey, we need a climate change yeah. story. They're going to call yeah. the climate change guy. They're not going to let's call Josh Dean. But if I, but I'm certainly able to write about all those things. So I sort of have to often be the proactive one is looking for the ideas then I can take them to someone. And I've never had anyone say to me, at least not that I can remember, you shouldn't do that because you're not a historian or you're, I mean, my last book was essentially history. My book before that was about show dogs. I spent a year on yeah. the competitive dog show circuit. I mean, this sort of tells you. So I went from <laughs> dogs to the CIA. Now I'm doing aerospace engineering. Um, it's a, there's like no, it's a very wide canvas there. Yeah. And the dog one was, so I basically, it's called show dog. I spent a year following um, a professional dog handling team on the dog show circuit. And that one was, I love Bess and Show. Have you seen Bess and Show? You know, I I know it, you but I have it. not seen oh, it. Oh, it's amazing. So it's a mockumentary <laughs> about dog shows. It's like the basically, you know, it's a Christopher Guest. He did Spinal Tap. He did um, A Mighty Wind. A series of mockumentaries that are very close to reality. That's why they're funny. They're like making fun of people, but only barely caricaturing them. So I was like, that movie's hilarious. I wonder what the real world is like. So I went out and spent a year, and it was like, almost the same thing and people said that to me they kept saying is this going to be like best in show <laughs> and it wasn't like they were mad at best in show they were slightly 
embarrassed at themselves at how accurate it was. They're wow. like, they're like, okay, we realize how ridiculous we look. So I just spent a year following dog people around. Um, that's that's fascinating. I've I actually have been thinking in similar thoughts as comparing generalists versus specialists, and I think naturally I gear towards wanting to be more of a generalist of taking in a bunch of information, doing something with it, rather than like uh, jackhammering towards something super specific. Um, but to guide that into a question while we only have about 10 minutes left, um, if you could talk to your 20-year-old self who's sitting over there in the corner, what advice would you give him? I feel like I'm a, I'm a fairly... Um, rare example of someone who like like literally left college with with a very clear vision of what I wanted to do and I'm like I feel like I'm still on the same path but I I definitely did not anticipate my industry like I thought at this age I would be like comfortable and established and coasting which is not to say that I knew that I would get here but now that I, once I got to a certain level I thought, okay, I mean, I'm, this is great. I'm like, I've written for all the big magazines. I'm people seem to like my work. I should, from, this should only get better from here. I'll get more money and bigger stories, and I'll get a contract. And then the industry fell apart. So, on the one hand, I would want to tell my like 20 year old self, like, are you sure you're going to do that? Because you may end up like in your 40s, like at a moment where you're like, is this job going to exist in 20 years? On the other hand. I feel like vindicated or, you know, there's some level of satisfaction at having achieved. I don't want to say I've achieved all my goals, but like I've achieved a lot of them. I got like, you know, I left college wanting to go and work in national magazines and write stories. And I've been doing that now for 15 years. And so I feel pretty good about that. So, I mean, I don't think the 20 year old version of me necessarily was sure that would happen. I think I wanted it badly, but like it also seemed I was in Ohio. I grew up in a small town in Maryland. I'd never been to New York. Well, I came to New York once when I was six. It was scary to do that, to move here and think like it takes, you know, it takes like some naivete and, and hmm. some self belief that you can do it. I think one thing I didn't ever lack was, I mean, confidence is, is not exactly right. Cause I'm not sure that I, I don't know how confident I was, but I knew that I was good at it. Like I just, not just because of that test thing, although that helped. It helps like when the first thing people are telling you is like, you are really good at like, not just good at this, exceptionally good compared to your peers, which granted is a small pool. Like they're not telling me yeah. that at Princeton. Yeah. But it's still, it's like, okay, this is the thing you should do, which I think, I mean, I worry about this with my own kids. Like it's hard picking the thing you're going to do for the rest of your life. It's a scary thing because what if you hate it? I think a lot of people do hate it. I think you don't have to stick with it. And I think especially on the more generalist side, like there are certain abilities and skills that are applicable to a whole bunch of jobs. And like you can not necessarily feel like you're stuck. Like I would advise, like this didn't happen to me, but I would tell people like if you don't like it or you feel stuck, don't stick with it. Just like I think like the, the, to me that's such a sad to, to think that like 30 years later you'd wake up and be like, God, that was a mistake. Like, I feel like that's tragic for people. And I, I, I'm speaking as someone who had the privilege of parents who could afford to send me to college and I was able to choose where I wanted to go live. And I don't think that's always possible for people, but, but I think like maybe we're going too much toward hyper-specialization. I see this with kids and well with sports for sure but also it's like i think we're already telling kids like more and more like oh my god if you want to be an engineer you got to be in stem and you got i don't know that that's necessarily true like i'm sure there's a bunch of examples of that working out mm -hmm. but i'm also sure there's a lot it's not and i see it in sports because i'm a big sports fan there's a debate going on because malcolm gladwell writes the ten thousand hours thing and is like well if your kid's not hitting ten thousand backhands they're never gonna and then like there's like the LeBron James side where it's like LeBron James was a great football player. He was a great basketball player. He was a good, probably a good baseball player. I bet he's not bad at tennis. It's yeah. sort of like you don't have to hyper-specialize because I think at some point you can start to specialize. And in my case, I can like spend two weeks specializing in, in physics yeah. to the extent that I need to. But like what if you spent 10 years studying physics and then you're like, you know what? I hate physics. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's kind of sad. So... I don't know if that answered your question. I wandered a little bit. But I like so I, I feel like 
my 20 year old self would be very happy with where I am. But, and as much as I might want to tell him, don't go into journalism. Like I love it. Yeah. You know, I'll do it as long as I can, hopefully, hopefully forever. And when I, I do get asked that question by like student college students, like, should we not do this? I'm like, I, I don't want to like be overly optimistic about something that worries me. Like I don't, I'm not, um, always very confident about the future of this industry, but it's a vital industry and it's a great job. And if you can do it, like try and do it. Like, it's like I tell my kids, well, I don't tell them this. I think this, I'm like, my generation screwed up. My parents' generation screwed this planet up. Like you guys, <laughs> please save us. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's how I feel about journalism. Like the, the people coming up, like, please help us figure mm. this out because this is a great thing to do. When you think of someone with passion, who, I guess, who is the person with the most passion that you know? Like personally now or? or Give just, me one of each if that makes most sense. But personally, um, I'm a big sports fan. So I like, you know, I, 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 I well, I, here's a good example because I just got really into the Women's World Cup. Like, I, you know, all the criticism that the U.S. team got, I, I, I found them very charming. And like, I didn't read that as like brashness and obnoxiousness. I read that as like passion. And like Megan Rapinoe to me is like a, like a, generationally great figure sports figure of someone who's like she was having the time of her life but also like using her platform to do something really good and like didn't listen to the people who are saying like stick to sports or like you're embarrassing america she's like no i'm not you know what america is like exactly what i am like you know you guys are doing some crazy thing to this country that's like taking us in the wrong direction and so like a very recent example is i found and i found that whole team that way they were i realized that i'm you know, not everyone feels that way, but I found it, I found them very authentically passionate and like, and my wife and I talk about this all the time with, with patriotism. It's like, I feel like the right wing has, has hijacked patriotism so that like waving a flag almost feels like it means being a Republican mm. now. And that really bums me out because I do think there are like the make American great again is bullshit because I feel like America is and has been great. And there's so many great things about this country. And, and like it should be OK to be proud of that without being like part some, of some. Yeah. Like a it's not political. Right. It's like and that's what that team represented to me. I felt like they were like America contains multitudes. We realize it's a fraught political time and it, maybe it's weird to be flashing around the flag, but like we don't care. So that was that's like a recent example of someone who's who's really passionate um, I mean, I'm trying to think of a person, personal example. Um, well, God, those dog, those the other passionate people, there was something about the dog, you know, the dog experience was the dog show book was one where I knew I didn't want to make fun of those people. Cause here's the thing about passion can look really silly to people from the outside. Right. Like, and this is why I like writing about subcultures and eccentrics and people who might get labeled weird because I find it I really love seeing people who are like so passionate about something that the rest of us just don't understand mm. you're just like how could you devote your life <laughs> to dog shows yeah. right that seems so weird and crazy but when you meet them you're like this these are no different than like sports people or you know I don't know outdoors people or I've written about a bunch of like adventure athletes where it's just like it's the same thing. It's just like total devotion to a a, a, a subject or a, um, a job or a pursuit that makes you feel like fulfilled and, and like the thing that drives you to get up in the morning. And, and if that's dog shows or if that's like, I don't know, collecting toy figurines or whatever, it's all the same thing. Right. And I think our instinct is to make fun of people for that. And I think like, like, you know, embracing passions is like, if you don't have passions, then you're not happy. Right. Like it's sort of like going into the, physics 10 years after like devoting 10 years to studying physics and going into physics. If you're not passionate about it, you will never be happy. But if you love it, then you will always be happy. And I'm not going to pretend that everyone can have a job that is going to be the thing that exactly what they wanted. But I think if that's the case, then you got to find the other thing that you do really love. Right. Like, and, 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 and what I've, what journalism has taught me is that there are so many things that you can be passionate about and none of them are wrong. There's no, well, yes, actually, I mean, I find it weird when people are passionate about guns or, you know, certainly illegal things you should not be passionate about. But, uh, like, there's nothing too weird to be passionate about. So I think, like, 
it's always really nice for me to go and spend time with people who other others or the, the society or culture or, or someone label as weird. And I feel like I've failed at my job if the story that I write then makes them seem weird, right? Like maybe eccentric. I think eccentric is fair, but like it's just people who love to do something, right? Like, and that's what that's what life is about. I mean, it's about like raising families and being good humans and taking care of our planet, but it's also about like, it's a relatively short time we have here. So like, if you're not doing stuff that you love, then, then I feel like you're wasting days. What book have you gifted the most or has most impacted my own books (laughs) 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 or what book has most impacted your thinking? a good question and a hard one because I've read so many books. <laughs> um, as a as a college student, I really loved the right Tom Wolf, the right stuff. Like influenced me a lot as a journalist about the space program. Who's that by? Do you Tom know? Wolf. Okay. So it's um, he Tom Wolf was like one of the first. They called him. Um, I mean, there were like a lot of different terms, but narrative journalist, which was essentially like applying some of the techniques of fiction to nonfiction. So what we think of today is essentially just feature writing, but it's like not just reporting the news, like bringing personalities to life. So he wrote a story about the early days of the space program. It's great. Like that was hugely important to me in college and it's, I haven't reread it in a while, but it's, it's an amazing book. Um, this is a super depressing answer, but, um, there's a book about the Rwandan genocide by Philip Garavich called, um, we wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families. It, it's about, this horrible, horrible thing that happened in, in Rwanda, but it's just, it's also just like a really beautiful and powerful piece of journalism where he went and met families that had been killed during the genocide and how they came out of it and the stories of people that were lost. Um, and Rwanda actually, this is slightly off topic, but has become this amazing example of forgiveness. And this is something um, TJ and I t- have talked a lot about. TJ's a... a someone I was working on a book project with um, sort of roughly about mindfulness, but the Rwandans like adopted this radical forgiveness essentially, which is like this terrible thing happened in our country. Half of our country basically turned on the other ones and massacred 700,000 of them. Like how do we ever get past that? Like once it all stops, we have to go back to being a country and we're living next to each other. And what they decided was, we're going to have these reconciliation trials and the people can come forward and admit what they did and, and we're going to forgive them. And there's all these examples of like neighbors who like massacred neighbors and then like basically coming together and being like, you know, if I can't forgive you, then we're just going to kill each other forever. And it's really powerful. And so this book isn't about the reconciliation, but it's, it's about the human dramas in it. And it's really beautiful. It's another work of journal journalism. He's a New Yorker writer named Philip Garovich. Um, and it's like a very dark subject, but also, but not like, I don't know. There's something to take away from yeah, it. Yeah, and I sure. don't find like, I didn't, wasn't like super depressed. I, it, you know, also, we need to hear about these things, yeah. right? Like, it's like you and I were talking about climate change before we went on the air. It's like pretending the bad things don't happen is not helpful. Like, we need to look at the ugly things that humans do to each other and to the planet and to animals. And, and like, if we don't talk about them, then they happen more. And if we do talk about them, then maybe the next generation fixes those problems or, or doesn't end up in the same place, right? Because we keep repeating history. You know, we're, we're like regressing in so many ways, right? Well, I like understanding better today how journalism is playing such an important role. So yeah, well, I'm good. Good. I hope, I hope that's a good takeaway. If I could, that would, if I could just get that message out there more and more, I, I feel, I would feel good about talking. <laughs> Amazing. As we close up, where can people find more of your work, your books, your articles, more about you? So I don't update it very often, but I do have a website, which is just joshdean.com. I actually, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to update it a little more because my podcast project, which is called The Clearing, um, it's, it's a, a story I did with a woman who discovered her father was a serial killer, um, starts on Thursday. Um, it, that'll be available where all podcasts are found. Um, hopefully you'll be hearing about it. Mm-hmm. So joshdean.com is a good, is a good hub. And my books are mentioned there. Um, taking of K129 still out there. If you like the CIA and spy stories. <laughs> and then the next one is coming, um, hopefully in 2021. That's the one with Kelly Johnson, Johnson. 
the proposal is called the Impossible Factory. I don't know if that'll ultimately be the, the story, but it's the story of the Lockheed Skunk Works. Okay. And um, yeah, maybe late 20, but probably 2021. Okay. Thanks for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bub on Purpose podcast. If you would like to get show notes from the learnings that I hope you gathered during this conversation, you can email bubonpurpose at gmail.com and you will get a response with all of the show notes. Make sure to title the subject of your email something like show notes or your grandma's cookie recipe, your friend's dog's middle name, or really anything. I'll get back to you. Also, I would love if you would send me your suggestions of what you did or didn't like or who you think I should interview next on the podcast. And again, please send that to bubonpurpose at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Before you go, I want to leave you with a thought. The other day, I was reading 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari, which if you haven't read that or Sapiens, I would totally recommend. But he was pointing out that if you are really in love with someone, you never worry about the meaning of life. And I think love is sort of the ultimate form of passion. And yeah, maybe we can get too carried away with it. But I think there's also reason to follow what you love or who you love to feel fu more fulfilled and that leading to having a purpose. So anyways, that's just a, a thought to go away with. Also, the other day I was thinking, oh, I should get people to rate and review and subscribe to my podcast. And then I was like, why do I want that? And I guess thinking about it, I think I do want people to subscribe, rate, and review my podcast because although I do make it for my own curiosity, I think there are valuable um, lessons to take away from the people that I talk to, like Josh today. And if you subscribe, you rate, and review, more people are likely to find out about the podcast. And if you could share it with someone who you think would be interested, not only could it help them, but also it would fuel me in a sense, just like how Josh in this podcast mentioned how when he did great on that writing exam, it fueled him to keep going. And so though, even if I'm bad at this, I, uh, I'm still curious enough to have these conversations but ideally, I'd get more people to listen and give feedback so that I can get better, so that I get more res positive responses to not only uh, give value to the listeners, but also to help myself keep going in a sense. So anyways, if you could subscribe and share, that would be awesome. Uh, if you don't want to, let me know why and maybe we can make the podcast better. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.